In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So a little over a year ago, our illustrator, Ted Slampiak, been to the site, you've probably seen his illustration, really talented guy. He emailed me and said, Brett, look, I'm working on this new project, so I'm not going to be able to work on as many projects for you. And I was like, well, what's the project? And he said, it's this book of Navy SEAL skills on how to make improvised weapons, how to pick locks, how to evade someone in traffic how to hide things and uh, I, even kill people. And I was like, this sounds like the coolest thing in the world. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, yeah, it's really cool. And he's even like, my illustrations have to be approved by the government before we can publish it. I was like, this is awesome. Well, you have to let me know about it when it comes out. Well, he did. And the book is out. It's called 100 Deadly Skills, The Seal Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. And the author of it is Clint Emerson, and he worked with Ted to come out with this book. And it's an awesome book. It is a lot of fun. It's just cool Jason Bourne stuff. Even if you don't have to ever use it, you feel good or feel cool knowing that you know how to do this stuff if you ever had to. Today on the podcast, Clint and I discuss these 100 deadly skills, why a civilian should even know how to make an anal concealment. Uh, why, why is that? Why should we know that? We just talk about some other great, cool Jason Bourne, James Bond, Navy SEAL skills. A lot of fun stuff on the podcast with a lot of use, useful, practical takeaway information you can start incorporating in your daily life to uh, have more situational awareness and to protect you and your loved ones. So without further ado, 100 Deadly Skills with Clint Emerson. Clint Emerson, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Brett. It's uh, great to meet you. Great site. Love your stuff. Thank you so much. So your book is 100 Deadly Skills. Uh, it's illustrated by a one favorite, Ted Slampiak. Um, but before we get into the details of the books, we're gonna, this is fun. We're going to talk about some really cool Jason Bourne stuff today. Uh, let's talk about a bit about your background. Uh, how did you go from becoming a Navy SEAL, transitioning to a running a security consulting company? Um, well, I think becoming a SEAL started just like a lot of guys where, uh, as they were a kid, they probably met a SEAL, saw something on TV, read a book, uh, something usually it triggers that. For me, I grew up overseas in uh, Saudi Arabia. I was there from the second grade all the way to high school, and I was traveling through Frankfurt with my family on a uh, vacation back to the States, and in at the Frankfurt airport at the bar, um, we were waiting on a flight and I was probably nine, 10 years old. And at the bar, there was a guy with a, you know, like a black polo on and I could see a tattoo kind of hanging out from his sleeve on his, uh, left arm. 
And so I asked, you know, being a curious kid, I was like, what's that? He said, it's a trident. I said, what's a trident? He said, it represents, you know, a seal, blah, 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 blah. And he kind of gave me the breakdown. Eventually, he was like, where are you from, kid? I'm like, ah, I live in Saudi. And because uh, so, I kept on asking about, like, well, what do these seals do? And finally, he gave me a, uh, a little snippet that stuck in my head forever. And that was, well, you know, we bombed Libya, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, because I was living in Saudi and Vice President George Bush at the time came in country and said, we're going to have C-130s in case they retaliate into Saudi Arabia on Americans. Um, but long story short, he gave me a story about how the SEALs went in, took out the anti-aircraft guns so that the B-111s could come in nice and low, drop bombs and pull out. It made sense to me as a child. Then later, the funny part is, is I get finally through SEAL training and end up at SEAL Team 3, which at the time focused primarily on the Middle East. Um, and I started looking through the archives, talking to guys who'd been around for a while, and asked them about that particular mission. Well, they were like, yeah, we never, no, nobody here ever did that. So I was like, huh, well, maybe it's out at, you know, one of the more um, discreet commands, you know, like SEAL Team 6. Uh, you know, eventually I end up at SEAL Team 6. So then I do the same thing. <laughs> I start asking around and uh, no one has any record of any kind of op like that ever taking place. And I guess the point is, is yeah, it was sparked by probably a fraudulent operation that never happened, but it stuck <laughs> in my head forever. Um, but that's where my career began. <laughs> so it's actually kind of funny. Um, and then, you know, while I've been, you know, while I did my 20 years, Towards the end, I, you know, you see a lot of guys start to get out early and they end up doing contract work in Iraq or in Afghanistan, wearing body armor. And some of them get to do some fun stuff. But overall, it's, it's, nothing, it's nothing glamorous. It's nothing that you really want to be doing. But the money's great. So a lot of guys kind of fall into doing that type of stuff. And uh, I knew I was a career guy. I was going to do my 20 and then, you know, figure it out from there. But I kind of wanted to go into more of the corporate side, um, doing higher level stuff that uh, consists of crisis management policies, workplace violence policies, and uh, and then educating workforces. So we basically now I'm building this stuff that's uh, policy driven, and then you take that policy, you turn it into workforce education via e-learning or videos, and you push it out via their uh, whatever their platforms are, their servers or whatever they have in place, the infrastructure. So I could have never predicted doing that, but I wanted to do something a little smarter. I really didn't want to uh, be standing on a wall in Iraq making 500 bucks a day. Um, so I really started investing in myself towards the end of my career and then set everything up so that I could get out and start paying myself the day that I got out. Vice, what a lot of guys either don't have a plan, didn't have time to make a plan, or they just get out and they go with whatever whatever their buddies are doing. And uh, so I kind of forecasted a little bit and put some things together so that I could uh, do my own thing and hence escape the wolf. All right. So escape the wolf. You guys go into corporations, help them with their digital security, also just travel security. Yeah, we've we've put together um, crisis management plans and then educated you know the workforce on what to do during natural disasters, what to do during active shooters. I mean, you name it. Um, but we've also do uh, network analysis, vulnerability assessments. Um, but our unique capability that's been really attractive to Fortune 500s is uh, our ability to really get in clandestinely, like literally breaking in using criminal tactics 
uh, and then taking and taking over their networks. So if we can just get to one computer that's on their network, then we take it over, and then it, then at the end we give a, a a nice big thick vulnerability report, and then tell them how to fix those problems. So it emulates um, bad guys. It emulates a foreign intel service. It it also uh, emulates an insider attack, like something like Sony. So you know if if something can be done at the computer inside the office then we will do that along with, you know, your typical remote attacks, you know, from outside the fence line trying to get in, you know, from the internet. Um, so we kind of do it all in one shot, um, which gives them, you know, facility threat assessments, where are all their gaps and loopholes? Can I just, you know, a lot of times we get in during the day with, you know, a coffee in one hand and my cell phone up to my ear and somebody will just hold the door open for me and I'm in. Um, so we put it all together, social engineering, facility assessments, cyber, and then give them a big fat report. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about your book, uh, 100 deadly skills. Um, so Ted Slampiak, he does the illustrations of our art of manliness. Um, and when he told me about this project, he's like, yeah, I'm working on this project with this Navy seal. This is like about a year ago. And it's like, he's like hundred like Navy seal skills. And like, it has to be approved by the government. And I was like, wait a minute. What, what kind of stuff are you putting in a book that needs to be approved by the government uh, first? So, I mean, what kind of stuff, like, I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what things in the book needed to get approval from the government before you published it? Well, really, it's, it's, it's a much bigger level than that. Um, ever since uh, No Easy Day came out by Mark Owen, um, that book kind of created a firestorm with uh, an approval system that no one knew about prior to Mark releasing his book. So everyone else prior to him had written books, put them out, published them. Nobody really had any clue that, wait a minute, I'm supposed to get this stuff reviewed by the Pentagon before I publish. Well, you know, Mark, unfortunately for him, he, uh, he ended up being the guy that, you know, took, took a barrage of fire, federal investigations, and probably a whole lot of other stuff that we don't know about because his information was, uh, you know, it was light. It wasn't anything that anyone tells you before you get out or you retire. Hey, make sure you do this. Um, so, uh, first, I mean, the book, every, every person in the military, it's highly recommended that if they're going to put something on paper or if they're going to put a PowerPoint brief together to go brief a bunch of people, that it gets reviewed by the Pentagon. And uh, now, I mean, I highly recommend it. So it's more about as a former military guy or retired guy doing the right thing, making sure that what you put in the book isn't somehow sensitive. Um, and that's not up to the individual's discretion. That's up to the government's discretion. So I had to turn all hundred skills in and have them review each and every one along with the narratives, the illustrations, you name it. And then they actually, from the Pentagon, they send it to every agency you ever, you know, stood at. So, it went to Naval Special Warfare. It went to SEAL Team 6. It went to SOCOM. It went to the NSA. So any place I ever hung out, uh, it is the Pentagon's responsibility to disseminate it out to everyone. And then everyone gets to take a look at it and put their two cents in on whether they think something is sensitive or not. But the review process is there um, for that reason to protect information that could possibly be sensitive or classified. That is, you know, sometimes to a, a former or retired guy, maybe something innocent that he just didn't think that was all that sensitive, but turns out it is. And, uh, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the rules now that, uh, 
you know, since no easy day. Gotcha. That makes sense. All right. So, uh, in your book, you talk about everything from how to have situational awareness, how to make improvised gas masks. Uh, I'm just curious, like, why do you think, you know, why should civilians know this stuff? Like how to make improvised weapons and anal concealments? Um, because like whenever we've done content about sort of tactical things, like how to pick locks or escape zip ties, we always get a lot of guff from people like, oh, well, now the bad guys know this. And law enforcement officers say, well, you're just making our job harder now. Um, why, why do you think civilians should know this sort of thing? Uh, first, I think, you know, with with the increased number of attacks, whether it be lone wolves, inspired tire- terrorism, um, you name it, everything that's been going on lately, whether you're on a train, you know, in France or you're in your office building, you know, in D.C., uh, there's always that possibility of uh, a good day going really, really bad. And our natural born instincts are great. Usually uh, you've got something in your gut says, you know, something's wrong here. And uh, you hopefully react, you react to that accordingly. Um, but a lot of people don't. And it's getting to the point now where, you know, bad guys uh, are becoming more and more advanced. And so your natural born instincts are great, but you got to, uh, you got to, um, couple them with some good skills as well. So a lot of the skills in the book are presented in an offensive manner, but it's, it's all about, you know, exposing the bad guy offense in order to, you know, fortify, um, your personal defense, um, and even give you some of those offensive skills so that you can fight violence with violence. And, you know, as far as people, you know, watching movies, reading books or playing games and then leveraging that that is an excuse of why they go do bad stuff. The reality is, is if someone's going to go do something, they're going to go do it. Um, and most of the time they're, uh, they might be, uh, leveraging some of the information that's out there, but it's all over the internet these days. It's everywhere else. Um, and I like to believe that more good people read books, uh, than bad people do. Yeah. So, um, the more well-educated, ready civilians there are out there, to take on, you know, these, uh, encounters with the random bad guy, I think the better. So you, you call a prepared civilian or a prepared some person like a violent nomad, which I thought was a cool, cool, uh, cool description there. Um, and it's funny, you talk, you start off with the, the everyday carry kit and it's something we've talked about on the site before, but what should be in an EDC for a violent nomad so that he's prepared in any sort of situation? Um, you know, these things change day to day. I think a lot of times EDCs, uh, go hand in hand with what you're wearing, what you're carrying. Um, you kind of have to tailor it each day to whatever it is, uh, the, the environments that you might be visiting. Um, but overall, I mean, if you're going to be traveling abroad or, you know, you might be put in kind of a high threat situation at some point, you should always have the means of escape. Um, I'm a big proponent of that. If, uh, if you can hide a key somewhere, uh, you know, handcuff keys are readily available all over the internet. If you can put a razor blade somewhere between the two of those, you can get out of just about anything without knowing tricks. Um, if you look all the way back to, you know, 1921 Houdini's manual of, uh, of escape, he didn't do it because he was, you know, obviously great at some kind of, uh, you know, of, of all true magic. He was just, he was just good at escape because he was good at hiding tools everywhere that he could leverage and use, uh, without anybody knowing. So it's really nothing new or novel, but, you know, having, having some tools on you that give you the upper hand when things go south, 
Um, you know, I like, you know, the zebra pens cause they're one, they're cheap, but two, it's a steel barrel pen that you can buy it at any store. Um, but because of the way it's designed, you can punch it right through plywood. Um, there's a, there's a myriad of things I think that are common day items that everyone can utilize. You don't need to go spend three, $400 on, you know, all the different, uh, items that I see online or, you know, different sites, but, um, keeping it simple, I think too, is, is, a is a priority. Um, there's a point in which you can be carrying a whole lot of stuff that just makes you look suspicious to begin with. <laughs> and, uh, the goal isn't to look like a bad guy. It's, uh, it's to just have what you need to, uh, increase your odds of survivability. Yeah. I love you had a section about the zebra pen, um, that it could be turned, like you could punch it through plywood, which I was impressed with, but like, there's other uses you could do with that, uh, improvised weapon in a pinch. Correct. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously if it can go through plywood, then it can go through, uh, you know, you know, I have different points on there that if you're going to use a pen, one, the grip, um, a lot of people think that you got to have your thumb running parallel to the barrel of the, of the pen or a knife. The reality is you want a nice fist grip. It can be overhand, underhand, but, um, you know, and then that way, when you do have to use it to stab the bad guy, uh, it doesn't slip or, or in, inevitably end up on the ground. Um, and once you do it, you want to just keep going. And the reason I kind of talk about the violent nomad, that's, that's, you know, good people using skills for good, not evil. And, but it's, it's a point in which in the fight that you have to be just as violent as the person you're dealing with or else you're going to lose. So that's kind of the, the, you know, that dovetails into everything inside a hundred deli skills. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, in addition to the EDC, you also recommend creating what you call the vehicle bolt bag. And I think we've written about this before, but can you give us the general idea of what a vehicle bolt bag and what sort of things you might want to keep in it? Sure. A bolt bag is, uh, is really, you know, if crisis strikes you while you're out on the road, you want to have an ability to, uh, you know, survive at least for a day. I mean, depending on what you're doing, you may want to increase that. And it doesn't have to be a big backpack. It's something small in nature, uh, a messenger bag, if you will, that can hold, you know, water, some food, um, extra batteries and extra phone. Um, all of the essentials that you might need if you, your vehicle turns upside down, you want everything for that bolt bag compartmentalized into something. So it's not spread out. You have to assume worst case scenario that if you get into an accident, stuff's all over the car. Um, you, you don't want to have to be collecting it up. You want to be able to put the bag also somewhere that you can get to it, no matter the, whatever the configuration of the vehicle is, you want to be able to grab it and get out of that vehicle, um, as quickly as possible. And so the things that you need to have inside could be warmies, you know, environmental type stuff. It could be uh, survivability, all your life sustainment um, tools, you know, water, food, warmth, um, signal. And signal these days is usually cell phones, radios. Uh, if you're out in the middle of nowhere having a spot or some kind of GPS system on, um, you know, that, that can be tracked and you can be found. Um, there's a number of things, but those would be probably the primary. Awesome. So one thing I've noticed in the tactical world that often gets overlooked is fitness, right? There, there's a lot of content about improving your, your self-defense, you know, your, you know, unarmed defense, using weapons, blade or firearms, but we really, really talk about fitness, but you have a whole set, you have a section in there about the nomad workout. What sort of exercises do you recommend uh, people using to you know, stay fit for fighting conditions? Um, yeah, I put the uh, run, fight, run philosophy, which is something that I do 
you, um, you know, literally every day. And it's not about looking good in a mirror or, you know, getting ripped, you know, the, the, the kind of the secondary results, sure, you probably look good in a T-shirt and you probably, you know, can see your abs. But that's not the primary reason. Primary reason is to give you functional strength that works when you are in the middle of an attack. Um, so run, fight, run. One, in a fight, it's, it's great to have skills. But if the skills aren't coupled with cardiovascular endurance, then you're probably going to run out of gas and you're going to inevitably end up either losing or not having enough energy to get away from the problem or the conflict. So you want to make sure that you have sprints included into your workouts. Hence the reason you have the run aspect of run, fight, run. Now the fight, I like heavy bags. Um, you know, I like, it doesn't matter if you're a boxer or not, you can get on a heavy bag and go to town on that thing, punching it, kicking it, kneeing it, whatever you need to do. Um, and over time you'll find out that your punches, your kicks and your knees become, uh, pretty darn swift. And, uh, so combining one minute of fighting on a heavy bag with a sprint and then coming right back to that heavy bag and utilizing it for squats, lunges. Um, if you just want to do, um, you know, heavy bag carries, heavy bag on the ground and also strike it from there and then do a sprint. But you just want to rotate between sprints and some kind of fighting action on a, on a heavy bag or whatever you can get your hands on, um, back and forth and then increase your times for both as you move through it each day so that you might, might start out at a minute run in a minute fight um, and go back and forth five to six times. And then, you know, a month later, you'll be, you know, going multiple minutes, which you want to work up to about a three minute round, which in boxing is the average. So you'd three minutes on a heavy bag, three minutes at a fast paced run and rotating back and forth between the two, switching up your bag routine to either the hanging bag, the bag on the ground, or using that bag to do different lift. That's generally, that's generally the purpose so that if you do get into a fight, at least cardiovascularly, you can maintain the fight and uh, hopefully have enough gas to run away. Not just, you don't want to stay engaged in it. You want to get away as soon as possible. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made to measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents 
to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, yeah. I love how uh, simple and functional that, that is. So yeah. the one thing I want to talk about, so we've had a lot of high-profile mass shootings in the U.S. the past few years. And one thing I've noticed, I think it's sort of disheartening, is that whenever the news reports on them, I rarely hear them getting experts on to talk to civilians on what you're supposed to do if you find yourself in this sort of situation. Um, so what should you do if you find yourself in an active shooter situation? Um, the philosophy that, you know, even with uh, my company that we pushed corporations is the run, fight, run. I mean, I'm sorry, run, hide, or fight. Um, it's a lot like the workout. But the the goal is, one, to get away. And running, if, if you hear shots or you smell fire, any kind of crisis, you obviously want to increase distance. Um, that obviously will increase survivability. So, 
running. Running is uh, the first option that should be part of a mental checklist. And then the run should be in a zigzag pattern. Um, anybody who's been on the battlefield knows that someone running away in a zigzag left to right and increasing distance at the same time is a very hard shot to make. Um, so if there's an active shooter, it's his first first time to go into a building and start killing people, his accuracy is already going to be diminished just on nerves alone. But when, when you add in a zigzag pattern and you're increasing distance, then you're probably going to win um, on that front. Um, and then as you run, you want to run from cover to cover. Um, and the way I define cover versus concealment, concealment is like hiding behind curtains. It's great. I can't see you. Uh, the bullet's going to punch right through it. Whereas cover is more like a planter, an engine block, a concrete wall. I can't see you, and if I shoot in that general direction, the bullet is not going to um, be successful. So you always want to run from cover to cover. You always want to maintain a zigzag pattern. Um, hide. You know, like the guys on the train, they were in a confined space. So in their head, they're like, can I run? No. Can I hide? No. So that leaves the third option, which is fight. So with the hide, you want to make sure you're hiding behind cover. You always want to make sure you can keep your eyes on the bad guy. You never want to lose track of that because that's the one advantage that you can maintain is knowing where he is at all times, which also determines your tactical decision-making, which is, okay, he's not looking at me or in my general vicinity right now, so now I can move to the next position and always increasing distance, hiding along the way. Um, but when you're in a confined space of a room, a train, a plane, then obviously fight is really the only option. And uh, so the fight is better done as a team. So I always say, hey, you know, you need to have a team, two or three, and each person is going to have big macro jobs or positions in the fight. One guy's going for the weapon. One guy's going for the legs. One guy's going for the head. If I can control the head, I can control the body. Um, and that's the general gist of how active shooters should be dealt with from a civilian's point of view. Gotcha. And then you have schools and lockdown drills, which is an entirely different philosophy that was designed so that SWAT teams would be successful. Because um, if you have everyone hiding and out of the way, um, then it gives a SWAT team a greater chance of uh, winning the fight against that lone wolf standing by himself in a hallway. Um, but not necessarily, you know, always great for the people hiding. Yeah. I mean, I, I, has their philosophy sort of changed because uh, since the recent shootings were oftentimes these guys are just killing themselves after the, you know, very quickly after they uh, finish their job, right? Uh, are some policy changing where they're actually encouraging security on campus or teachers to like go and like try to disarm the guy as fast as possible? Yeah. I mean, I think it, so the environment's been dicta dictating that a lot for us. If we come in and we custom build something, it's, uh, you know, do you have a campus setting, multiple buildings on a large estate that that's one train of, uh, best practices or are you in a downtown kind of a more of a vertical space you know um if you're a campus you know that's kind of a nightmare situation and if you're in a vertical space that's a little better but really the environment is going to dictate what the students or what employees should be doing um in order to 
survive an active shooter. It's not so much just a one, there's no, there's no just bandaid to just kind of sure. fix it all. It's, uh, it's really environmentally, um, based. Sure. All right. So you mentioned something interesting. So, uh, you have to recognize what's going on around you, right? You have to recognize fire. You, you smell something and like the guys in the train, like the, uh, they recognize the sound of, uh, some guy racking a rifle. Um, and so at least it's like situational awareness. What can people do to develop that sort of situational awareness that they can, you know, make fast actions as soon as they notice something's not right? It's a tough one. Um, you know, you have so many distractions these days, but the best analogy I can compare it to is, you know, the, you know, years ago, you would never get in your car and think about safety first. You just got in your car and you drove. Our parents, um, now you get in your car and without any thought, you're putting on a seatbelt and then you're driving, you're taking it off and it's all muscle memory. It's all just part of your daily habits that have been ingrained in us because there's always that possibility of consequence. Consequence is what is really a driving um, force and making something a little more habitual. For us, it's getting a ticket by a cop or possible death in an accident. So we go, all right, or it's just annoying beeping sound that your car makes until you put your seatbelt on. Um, so consequence is really the driver, right? So now if you take that analogy and I apply it to situational awareness, what is the consequence of me sitting in this restaurant? What is the consequence of me being on a train and then working backwards from that? You know, So inevitably what happens is all of a sudden you just start paying attention to things a little better by what ifing, and you hear it all the time. How do you get good to situation where, well, everywhere you go, you what if it. Um, and it's not really so much about having this mental checklist or colors that represent different states that I'm supposed to be in. It's just about being a little more alert, getting your head out of the cell phone from time to time, and, and taking the opportunity to go, what is the consequence of me sitting where I'm sitting right now, or me walking where I'm walking or driving where I'm driving? And you'll find yourself actually coming up with things that you would do uh, if that consequence um, actually became reality. And that's kind of that's kind of the quick analogy that I can give. Um, there's a mental checklist, obviously, but uh, these things tend to you know work when you're doing it, but don't become a habit unless you're thinking about consequence. Gotcha. So we could get into some other more very like violent tactical things. There's a lot of great stuff in there, like what to do if someone pulls a gun on you from the front, from the back, how to make uh, various improvised weapons. Uh, the gas mask thing was awesome. Uh, the, the weapon you can make or a, like a flashbang you can make with a lighter that's in there. Um, it's fun stuff. But I want to talk about uh, some stuff that I think would be really useful for po folks who might not find themselves having to, you know, use this stuff, uh, the more tact violent stuff, but you have a lot of things in there about, um, traveling, uh, security travel, like what you should do to keep yourself secure when you travel. So for folks who are readers who travel a lot, what can they do? And I've, I've, I'm always worried about this. I kind of freak out about this whenever I stay in a hotel room, but what can you do to maintain hope security in your hotel room and that your stuff doesn't get stolen? Um, well, there's a, First, you got to start, once again, I like starting macro, I like starting with, you know, okay, the country I'm going to. Um, <clears throat> I can pick a Marriott, I can pick a Hilton. What most people don't know is that Marriott's, Hilton's, a lot of your big Western hotel chains are not owned by Marriott. It's a license, they're leveraging, it's usually held by a larger holding company, or you have 
27 hotels, let's say, in China that all say Marriott, but they're owned by an investment portfolio. And then Marriott uh, headquarters then roams the planet, making sure that everyone is following all of the best practices that they put into the manual that all of these holding companies are supposed to be following. Hence the reason why when you walk into every Marriott on the planet, they all feel exactly the same. But the reality is they're all owned by different people. So that's the first thing you got to know is just because you're standing in a Marriott doesn't mean it's a U.S. owned Marriott. So second, it could be owned by a hostile country. And when I say hostile, I mean countries that are, you know, doing cyber attacks against us every day. So that, you know, if you're BRIC countries, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, all the countries that are trying to become economic superpowers and want to match America financially, well, then they will do anything that they can to get ahead, which means if you stay in a hotel that's owned by a Chinese holding company, but it says Marriott, uh, then everything in your room is subject to search, overtly or covertly. Um, as we found with the Olympics in Russia, they built a whole ton of stuff, uh, hotels and buildings and everything. But when they built it, they went ahead and loaded it with audio and video in you know, every room. Um, this is nothing new. It's been going on since you know the invention of the microphone. So um, you have to know, one, that you, ha you have to basically assume that you're always being watched, that you're always being listened to. So your hotel room tends to become a sanctuary for a lot of people, and they feel at ease and relax. But really, it's probably where you should have your guard up the most. Your valuables. Don't leave anything behind. Especially digital stuff. Uh, it doesn't matter if you got passwords. There's ways around um, most of it, especially when you're talking about foreign intel services. Sophisticated foreign intel guys are going to come into that room and they're going to take whatever they want off of any device you leave behind and you're never going to know it. Uh, that's why it's the government operating against you. And why would the government operate against you? You're just a civilian on vacation. But the reality is, China, in particular, is just doing shotgun blast, sponge-like absorption of everything they can that they will figure out later how to use against us, and it's becoming a trend. So if they can do it through hacks, then they'll also do it physically if they can get a hold of a laptop. I just had a friend come back from China, and he stayed in his hotel room, uh, you know, uh, I was approximately like two weeks there, and every day he'd come in, the room smelled. Not like smoke. So he'd go to the front desk, say, "Hey, my room smells like smoke," and they say, "Oh, well, that's that's uh, that's just the security forces checking your stuff. They like to smoke." And he'd be like, "Okay, can they change rooms? Okay, change rooms." So he changes rooms, and every day it smelled like smoke because they're smoking while they're searching his room and going through his stuff. This is the point where you know China has just become very bold. They don't even care about consequence. They they because there isn't any, and they continue to do whatever they are to us Westerners because well they can. And uh, so bottom line with hotels, don't leave anything behind. Take your valuables with you, especially if it's digital. If you're working for a big company, don't hold any sensitive conversations in those rooms. Uh, leave that for outside. If there's you got to talk about something sensitive, go outside to talk about it. Uh, those are probably my bigger recommendations and hopefully something new for uh, for those listening. Yeah, it's kind of counter counterintuitive because you would think, oh, I'm going to go to a room where there's privacy not to some public place to talk about discrete things. Yeah, no, you're right. It's get outside. It's much different for people to, uh, you know, collect your conversation when you're out in the open than it is if you're confined in a room, you know? So yeah. especially when, obviously, if there's microphones and cameras sitting there. 
So be, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. It, the only the only other piece I would add to this is you don't want to be the guy that gets thrown in jail because people think you're a spy. So you don't you don't want to actively come into a hotel room and start searching the place for these types of things. It's something <laughs> you just need to know that could possibly exist and remain normal. Remember, if they are watching you and you start acting a little strange, it might give them a reason to uh, arrest you for espionage or something. And you don't want that happening just because you're looking out for your own safety. So it's better just to assume you're being watched, assume you're being listened to and uh, hold those conversations for a later date. Awesome. So you had some uh, James Bond-esque like, tactics on how to detect if someone has been tampering with your stuff. I guess for your buddy, it was pretty easy because it smelled like smoke. Um, but are there some little subtle things you can do to, uh, so you know when you come back to your room, like, okay, someone's been messing with my stuff? Well, yeah, I always, the first thing I'd always push is technology, right? I mean, there's, there's a, a, an app out there called Photo Trap. And that thing, you take a picture of your room, before you leave, you take a picture when you come back, and it animates anything that's been moved. If a drawer is left slightly open, you'll see that drawer open and close, open and close, open and close. If a book or your laptop or anything that you've left behind has been shifted at all, you're going to see it shift. You're going to see it that it's that something has been disturbed. Um, but if you're not using technology, then there's some physical things you can do. One, you want to set up eccentric rings that signal you that something has been um, displaced. First, starting with your door, um, one, put the tag on the door that says do not disturb. Right Now, you cannot assume that that, that does not mean people are going to go in and out while you're gone. They will go in if they want. So, But what you can do is set that do not disturb up to where it kind of closes between the door and the door frame. And if the door is opened then it'll hang freely. And when you come back to your door, you'll see that free hanging, um, do not disturb sign. And that's your first signal that, all right, somebody may have gone in my room or somebody came by your door and actually pulled it out from between the door and the door frame while hanging on the knob. Um, but at least it's a signal to start paying attention when you enter your room. Things you can do inside your room is one, keep it simple, keep it discreet, keep it uh, common to the environment that you're in. You don't want to put, you know, you know, the old school stuff of, uh, tape across a door or something stupid like that. Cause that <laughs> looks like espionage and you could get arrested or whatever they want to do. You got to remember you're in someone else's country on someone else's domain. They can do whatever they want to you. So keep it natural to the environment, keep it simple so that you can remember it. Um, so I like cardinal bearings. Cardinal bearings is just hey North, South, East, West, right? So I can take a coffee cup. I can put the handle, uh, maybe cardinal bearing north and put it right next to the USB ports um, near my laptop because I have to leave it behind because I don't want to carry it all day while I'm doing tourist stuff. Um, and you're putting it by the USB ports because that's going to be the, the point of attack. Um, and then you're putting the coffee cup there with the handle pointed north. When you come back, you'll know, okay, if that's even slightly off, you'll know it. Um, or you can use, I like to use my thumb as like a guiding measurement. So I know I've got my laptop is one thumb length away from the desk edge. I know that the, uh, coffee cup is one thumb away from my laptop, your thumb. It's your measurement. No one can change that. When you come back, you put your thumb back down. Yep. My tip of my thumb is barely touching my laptop. I know that it hasn't been shifted. The coffee cup, the water bottle, all these things you can do around the room. You're keeping it natural to the environment. You're keeping it simple so you can remember it. 
if you set things up in weird ways, the odds are you won't remember exactly how it was set up. It's not until you get back, you go, wait a minute, was that, you know, <laughs> was that tag actually hanging to the left or to the right? Um, those are just some simple things, but the book definitely covers more. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of, you mentioned that app. Um, or just digital security in general, right? You'd mentioned that the USB port's the point of attack. What can you do? Are there some simple things that people can do to keep their phones and computers safe from hackers? Um, yeah, I mean, password, password, password. We hear it all the time, but the, the philosophy that we push, um, and no one likes to hear it, but the longer the password, the better. And, and longer passwords uh, have been very effective against... Uh, the different attacks out there. You know, you, the, the, we, we all think that there's a, a hacker sitting in the shadows of his basement and he's just going to town with his keyboard trying to get into things. But they're actually have evolved. You know, they're creating programs or viruses that do a lot of work for them. And, um, and then they run these programs or viruses against, you know, hundreds of usernames and passwords at the same times. Some of this, some of these programs they create can actually run, you know, 500 characters per second against a password. So that's, you know, if you look at it like a dial on a safe, if I'm running the dial 500 different of the possibilities on there per second, uh, and there's only three combinations, I'm probably going to get in pretty quick. So if you only have three digits in your password, then they're probably going to get in pretty quick. So the idea is, is if the longer the password, the longer it takes for someone to get in, especially these, these bots. You hear them called bot attacks. And these bots go out and they run against the username and they run against the password simultaneously, hundreds of characters per second, and try to figure it out. But a lot of times they're programmed to only stay on target for 15 minutes, uh, give or take. So if you create a password that is 22 characters or more, you're going to actually, it would take a bot attack approximately, if you do the math calculation, on a 22-character password, somewhere around 15 to 20 years that you just increase time on target for a bot attack. Um, that takes me to usernames. Your username, sometimes we feel like it has to be your email address. Not always. You should treat your username like a second password. So if you have the ability to put in whatever username you want, don't use your email address. Don't use things that are common to you because that's the easiest thing to figure out, and that's the first step in cracking the code. Your username needs to look, be looked at as a password. So make it something uh, not necessarily complicated, but make it long. Peas and carrots uh, can be a username. And then a 22-character password doesn't have to be crazy symbols and all this and that. It, because if a bot attack is running all the characters, it doesn't matter what symbol you use on the keyboard. It's going to run through it anyway. So you just want to make it long. Um, and you don't want any your username or your password to be associated to your personal life or things that most um, you know, smarter systems are going to leverage first. You know, birthdays. We've already heard all that stuff. But that's the general philosophy. Yeah. And I guess you want to keep away the personal stuff too because people could use social engineering – to figure out your password or username. I guess uh, people have done that where they'll call customer service and say, oh, I don't know, my pa I forgot my password, but here's my birthday because you put your birthday out there somewhere. 
Exactly. Birthdays, social security numbers, I mean, you name it. And these days, you know, social engineering has gone more from the phone call to, you know, spear phishing or phishing attacks. So now you've got them sending out, um, you know, emails that look like they're from the company they work for. You know, if let's say it's, a, you know, a big box retailer um, and their logo happens to look like a Target. Uh, you, they send out mass emails to every employee. It looks official and it has a little spot on there for username and password. So if you can get 25% of the company to click on that email and then another 25% to put in their username and password, well then you inevitably end up owning that company. Um, if you know what you're doing, so you never want to fall for that kind of stuff. Uh, you never want to give up if you're getting stuff via email that is asking for usernames and passwords. Um, pick up the phone, call, and verify that it's real or not. But more than likely, reputable companies are not going to be sending out that kind of um, e- those kinds of emails to get you to do stuff like that. They just don't. So don't click on anything that you don't recognize. And sure as hell, don't put a username and password into anything that, that, you, <laughs> that you should or shouldn't. Awesome. Well, Clint, this has been a great conversation. We've just gotten given people a taste of what you'll find in 100 Deadly Skills. We didn't talk about what you do uh, if you ever get uh, kidnapped and how to escape. There's information there about escape and evade, how to track someone. A lot of great, cool Jason Bourne stuff. But uh, where can people find out more about the book and about your work? Uh, you can go to 100deadlyskills.com. Um, that'll guide you to all of our social media, and there's a place to sign up for our newsletter because we'll be doing updates on potential digital series of each skill so that people can uh, actually watch how to do this type of stuff, um, Vice read about it. So 100dellyskills.com will uh, get them to everything else. All right. Well, Clint Emerson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks, Brett, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Our guest today was Clint Emerson. He's the author of the book, 100 Deadly Skills, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. It's available on Amazon.com. Go out there and get it. It's just, you're going to have a lot of fun with this book. You can also find out more information about the book at 100deadlyskills.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, whatever it is used to listen to the podcast. It really helped us out a lot by getting the word out about the podcast as well as giving us feedback on how we can improve the show. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.